Just uh, really in a parting time, I, I have been doing the Beatitudes, but um, for this morning, I, I just want to lay something on your heart that's always on my heart as a, as a focal point in Christian experience. You and I as Christians have one goal in life, and, and it helps me to be able to reduce all the stuff, you know, down to one thing. And the one goal in life for us is to give glory to God, right? And that's basically it. To give glory to God. That's why we were made. That's why we were here in the first place. When God created, He created everything to give Him glory. And uh, there are some parts of His creation that do that. Unhesitatingly and unflinchingly. The heavens, Psalm 19 says, declare the glory of God. They don't argue about it. uh, Isaiah 43, the beast of the field gives me honor. The, The creation of God honors Him with two exceptions. The creation of God glorifies him with two exceptions. And the first exception was angels, right? And there were some angels who refused to glorify God and were cast out of heaven and uh, reserved everlastingly for judgment. The second category of rebels are whom? Men. Men also refused to glorify God. Romans 1 says when they knew God, they what? Glorified him not as God. And so there you have the theater of all of the redemptive history. You have fallen angels who refuse to glorify God, locked in their fallenness with no hope of redemption. The only redeemable element left in God's creation of those who rebelled is men. And they have refused to glorify God, but God in His great mercy, instead of sentencing them to eternal hell with no hope of reparation, has granted to them a saving means. And so those of us who are fallen creatures can come to a right relationship with God. Those of us who refuse to glorify God can come to the place where we do glorify God. That's really all you live for, to give Him glory. That's why Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, what? Do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10:31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the most mundane thing of life, the most habitual thing you do, the seemingly non-essential thing in terms of spiritual life, do that to the glory of God. And then everything above that, of course, to the same purpose and the same goal. We are to glorify God. That's the key to all our living. David said it this way in Psalm 16, 8 and 9. Uh, I have set the Lord always before me. And what that means is in everything I do, my focal point is the Lord. It's as if I look at the world through God-colored glasses. Everything is colored and identified and uh, determined by my view of God. I want to live to glorify God. And, of course, um, you remember how David the psalmist went in Psalm 69 into the house of the Lord and was just cut to the heart and said, in effect, the zeal for thine house has eaten me up. What he meant by that was when he went into the house of the Lord and saw the desecration and the hypocrisy, it literally consumed him. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. I have such passion for the glory of your name that when you are dishonored, I feel the pain. What a marvelous thought. You know, you can measure your spiritual maturity by how you feel when God is dishonored. You can. When God's name is taken in vain, when God is mocked either in word or deed, when some evil is done against His holiness, 
When God is disobeyed or dishonored or ignored in any sense, you can monitor your spiritual maturity by whether your reaction is one of pain on behalf of God or not. Why do you think Jesus cleansed the temple? John 2. He quoted Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches, and this is a key one, that fall on you are fallen on me. In other words, when someone strikes a blow at you, I feel the pain. Now that's an intimate identification, isn't it? I understand what that means in a marriage. I understand what it means to feel pain in my heart because my wife is hurt. I understand what it means in a family to feel pain in my heart because my child is hurt. But the real test of spiritual maturity is, do I feel the pain in my heart when God is dishonored? If I do, then I'm, that's going to guard my life, isn't it? Because I'm not going to pain myself, so I'm not going to dishonor God with my life and bring reproach on Him and therefore pain on me. And also, it colors the way I respond to all the things going on around me. If God is dishonored, that pains me. I remember the, the great illustration of... Uh, William Carey, who going to India, went into a Hindu temple and seeing them worship an idol, ran out the back door of the temple, took out his diary and wrote in it, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is to be so dishonored. And he fell on his knees and wept. Very selfless. He was consumed by the honor of his Lord. And when he saw his Lord being dishonored, he couldn't endure existence. Now, there's the mark of spiritual maturity. It's not uh, what little spiritual ditties you do or don't do, what little routines of evangelicalism you're committed to or not committed to. The real test of spiritual maturity is how much do you desire to glorify God and do you so desire to glorify Him that if He is not glorified, you feel the pain. There's the mark. Now, let me talk specifically about the fact that when you glorify God, that means some very, very pointed things. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, let's just say to begin with, the first thing you do in glorifying God is to confess Jesus as Lord. If you want to glorify God, then confess Jesus as Lord, because in Philippians 2 it says that we are to confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. Philippians 2.11 You give glory to God when you acknowledge His Son to be Lord, right? After all, God has been saying Jesus is Lord. God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God said, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. And so God is saying Jesus is Lord. And when you say, yes, Jesus is Lord, you're glorifying God. You have to ask yourself the question, that's where, you all, that's where it all starts. In your life, are you giving glory to God by confessing Jesus as Lord? Not just with your lips, but with the way you live. That's where it starts. There's another thought, too. You, you give God the glory. You give God the glory when you aim your life at that purpose. When you aim your life at that purpose. What do I mean by that? I mean 1 Corinthians 10.31 again. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do all of the glory of God. In other words, the thing that conditions every decision you make is will it glorify God? Not will it satisfy me. Not will it attain for me what goals I desire. Not will it be that which will cause people to commend me. Not will it be that which makes me popular or wealthy or prosperous or successful. But will it glorify God? That's the bottom line. And if you can learn, and it's, it's really a matter of discipline. If you can learn by discipline to think that thought often, then you'll understand what it means to put the Lord always before you. 
I mean, you get halfway into any endeavor or any thought or halfway into the realization of any motive and you stop and say to yourself, is my desire to glorify God? Will this glorify God? That becomes the grid through which every action and every attitude must pass. That has a lot of ramifications. That means, that means you don't really care, humanly speaking, who gets the glory as long as God is honored, right? And that takes a lot of the jealousy and the envy out of the fellowship of saints. You remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1? He was in jail and some people were criticizing him and some people were condemning him and saying the Lord put him in jail because he blew his ministry and younger men were coming along and they were the new shining lights and everybody was listening to them and some of them were preaching Christ of contention. That is, they were contentious against Paul out of envy and jealousy. They were speaking evil of Paul and uh, they were receiving all the accolades of the crowd instead of Paul who received them for so long. And he says in Philippians 1, Nevertheless, notwithstanding... Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice and will rejoice. In other words, the issue to him is whether Christ was preached, not who the human instrument was. Right? didn't matter to him who the human instrument was, as long as Christ was being preached. Boy, that is a mature attitude. That is a very mature attitude. God, I don't care who you use, and I don't care how greatly you use somebody else who does exactly what I do better than I do it, as long as you get the glory. That's a very mature attitude. Can you say in your heart, yes, one, I hurt when God is dishonored. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I so am concerned with the glory of God that I don't mind if someone who does exactly what I do does it better than I do, as long as he gets the glory. Very mature. Here's a third thing. You glorify God not only by aiming your life at that purpose and confessing Christ as Lord, but by confessing your sin. Confession of sin glorifies God. It's not mystical to glorify God. It's not organ music and stained glass windows and uh, spiritual goosebumps and feelings and things. You glorify God in very practical ways by confessing your sin. Joshua chapter 7. What happens? Joshua goes into the city when he's told not to take anything and... Uh, uh, I'm not Joshua. Uh, Achan. And Joshua confronts him. Achan comes out, buries all the stuff in his tent. That was where people put things. That was the bank of the old days. He buried it in the ground. Sticks it in his tent so nobody can find it. And he's confronted by Joshua. And Joshua says to him, very interesting statement, Confess your sin and give glory to God. Joshua 7:19. Confess your sin and give glory to God. Do you know what glorifies God when you confess your sin? Why? You know what happened to Achan? What happened to him? What did God do to Achan? Killed him. And he killed a whole lot of other folks in his family, right? Total wipeout. Because they all involved themselves in the crime. Now, what is somebody going to say when they look at that? What kind of a God is that? I mean, a guy goes in there, takes all that stuff. I mean, I, I know he didn't do the right thing, but give the guy a break. I mean, why kill his whole family? And you see, the temptation in a situation like that is to, is to blame God. You, you, see, you have to realize, people, we are so used to God's mercy that we think his justice is unjust. We are so used to God's grace that when he, does what he ought to, when he does what he ought to do, we think he's doing what he ought not to do. We're so used to his mercy. So God acted justly, and the point that, he wanted, that Joshua wanted Achan to, to make was very important. He says to him, Achan, you confess your sin. And as long as you have confessed your sin, then when just retribution comes, nobody's going to blame God. They're going to blame whom? You. And God will be exonerated and glorified. 
That's his point. And let me tell you something. Does God have a right to punish sin? Does he? Sure. If you're not willing to admit your sin and God punishes you, you may shake your fist and blame him. But as soon as you, as soon as you have said, Lord, I have sinned, and I have broken your law, and I have broken your word, and I am an unworthy sinner, and you cry out like Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone, a man with a dirty mouth, living amidst people with dirty mouths. As soon as you acknowledge your sin, then when God brings his chastening, he is free from any thought of reproach because you have acknowledged that you deserve it. Confession of sin, then, puts you in a position to receive the chastening of God and God still to be glorified. When you confess your sin, you bring glory to God. There's a fourth way that you glorify God, and that's by trusting Him. That's by trusting Him. Remember Abraham in Romans 4.20? It says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God, and then it says, giving glory to God. What did he believe God about? God told him he was going to do what? Going to have a son. He took one look at his wife, 96 years old, never had any children yet, over the hill by about 40 years. And he, a hundred, and of course it was some kind of a strange joke. Sarah laughed. That's why she named her child Laughter. He was sort of a joke, you know, it just couldn't happen. But they laughed about it, but eventually Abraham staggered not the promise of God, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Romans 4.20. Now you give glory to God when you believe Him. If I were to ask you, how many of you believe God when He says something, you raise your hand, you'd all stick your hand up, right? You believe God? But if you really apply that practically, do you believe God in a practical way? I mean, you say to people, do you believe God? Oh, yes. Do you ever worry? Oh, yes. No, I really, I worry all the time. Worry, worry, worry. Oh, I see. You don't believe God? Yeah, I believe God. It's just I don't, I don't know how to get from believing God over here to not worrying over here. But that's really very pragmatically a statement that says, I'm not sure God can handle things. You have a relationship, uh, maybe a guy and a girl relationship, and it's got some kind of problems in it. Instead of being able to trustingly commit it to God, who is sovereign and works all things according to His holy purpose, we worry about it, we get anxious about it, we fret about it. We don't know where our money's coming from, we don't know where our food's coming from, we don't know if we're going to have the resources, we don't know whether we're going to get a summer job. We've got all these anxieties, we carry all these anxieties in all the time, affirming with all our might when asked, we trust God. You see, when you say that and you don't do that, you're not giving Him glory. You glorify God when in simple faith you believe Him for what appears to be on the surface impossible. Put Him to the test. You glorify God by trusting Him. So how do you live a life glorifying God? Confess Jesus as Lord. Aim your life at that purpose. Confess your sin so that if He chooses to chasten you, He's free from any thought of, of evil doing. And then learn to trust God. Let me give you another way. We glorify God by prayer. By prayer. You know the primary purpose of prayer is not for you to get what you want, but for God to give Him a display of His glory. Do you ever think about that? The primary objective of prayer is not for you to get what you want, like the little girl who prays, God bless mommy, God bless daddy, and then screams real loud, God, I want a new bicycle. And her father says, uh, I mean her grandmother says, uh, I'm sorry, her father says, God is not deaf. And she says, I know, but Grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. A little bit of manipulation. You know, for most people, prayer is consumption. And certainly today with the name it and claim it theology, the prosperity gospel, everybody going out saying, I want this, I want that, I want that, gimme, gimme, gimme. Prayer has become a self-indulgent exercise. 
But in the Bible, prayer is which gives him opportunity to put himself on display. John 14, 13, and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Here's the reason. In order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The reason God wants to answer your prayer is so that God can put his power on display for you to see. I mean, for example, you go to a prayer meeting sometime and somebody gets up and says, Hey, so, uh, Ethel was saved last week. And people go, Oh, fantastic. Isn't that marvelous? And, and you sit there and go, oh, Who cares? Right. Who's Ethel? See, if you are not in, if you're not in the process of calling on God in behalf of Ethel, what happens doesn't affect you. But if you were a part of those people who were praying, when God responded in power, you're going to say, praise your name, Lord, right? Because you are involved in the process. Prayer, then, is the way you open your eyes to see the power of God made manifest. In order that you might give Him glory. Well, there are many other ways. John 15, 8 says... Herein is your Father glorified that you what? Bear much fruit. Herein is your Father glorified you bear much fruit. You say, what's fruit? Righteous deeds. Righteous deeds, the fruits of righteousness, the fruit of your lips, which is praise, the first fruits leading someone to Christ. And when you have a fruitful life, and righteousness is the pattern of your life, and praise is the pattern of your speech, and you're winning people to Christ, that's fruit, and that glorifies God. Whatever you do in your life, you keep the focus glorifying God. Moral purity is another way you glorify God. How about this one? First Corinthians 6, you know this. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your spirit and your, and your body. And the whole context there is don't join yourself to a harlot, flee away from fornication, and so forth and so on. You glorify God by moral purity, by keeping unspotted from the world and from sexual evil. Romans 15, 5-7 says we glorify God with one mind and one heart and one mouth. We then glorify God in that context by our unity. By our unity. We glorify God in our contentment. Uh, Philippians talks about the fact in chapter 4 that in whatever state we are in, there we are to be what? Content. And then he goes on to talk about giving glory to God in that contentment. We glorify God in evangelism. 2 Corinthians 4.15 uh, Paul talks about adding people to the group who can give God glory by winning them to Christ. We glorify God, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, by teaching the Word. He says, pray that the Word will have free course giving glory to God. I mean, the, the New Testament is just loaded with these things as well as the Old. And then one last one as we just come to a conclusion. We glorify God by praise. By praise. Psalm 50. Verse 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. I mean, that's a good list of things. And you need to learn to live your life that way. You glorify God by confessing Jesus as Lord, by aiming your life at that purpose, by confessing your sin, by trusting God, by praying, by bearing fruit, by the unity of the faith, by contentment, by moral purity, by all of these means, including praise, we give glory to God. Let me read you one verse in closing that sort of pulls it all together. If you have your Bible, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let me just have you read. You look at your Bible, read it silently to your heart, and then I'll read it out loud, and then I'll make a couple of comments. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, the Old Testament, the veil was over us, couldn't see clearly and fully, couldn't fully manifest the glory of God. But with an unveiled face, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now what he's saying here is now that the veil of the old covenant is taken off and you look right at the glory of the Lord manifest in Jesus Christ in all his beauty and fullness. As you look at the glory of the Lord, as you focus on the glory of the Lord, as that becomes the preoccupation of your life. You are transformed. Isn't that marvelous? People say, boy, how can I be a better Christian? How can I grow as a Christian? Here it is. There's no formula. There's no quick fix. You grow. You are transformed progressively as you focus on the glory of the Lord through glorifying Him in your life every way we've discussed. And as you do that, you are transformed into the same image. It's as if you are looking in a mirror, and in the mirror you're seeing the glory of the Lord, and the longer you look, the more you begin to look like Him. Let's see. You are transformed into the same image. Whose image would it be? Be Christ. From one level of glory to the next level of glory, and this is accomplished by the power of whom? The Spirit of the Lord. Now that's the key. You focus on the glory of the Lord, and by the power of the Spirit, as you gaze at His glory, you are being transformed from one level of glory to the next until you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It's my prayer for you. My prayer is that in this year we have just shared together that you have become more like Christ. In this year that you have looked at His glory and you have focused on His beautiful person, that you have found the Spirit of God has transformed you into more and more like He is. And the greatest satisfaction of your heart should be that as this year comes to a close, you can look at your life and do a little spiritual inventory and say, I am more like Christ now than I was when I came. Fair enough? That's really the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And I want you to know, too, that it's my prayer for all of you, and I, I care for you, and all of us do. It's our prayer for you this summer that the process of your spiritual growth will not slow down. But as the pace of school stops and you get back into the flow of life, you will begin to apply these things so that when you come back in the fall, we will note then that you have grown since the time you left and that you'll continue to be transformed into the very glory of the Lord upon which you have set your focus. We want you to be like Jesus Christ. That's going to be our, our prayer, my prayer, for all of you during these summer times. And thank you for your graciousness to me. It's been a new experience for me, and uh, I've fallen on my face many times in learning just how to be what I need to be in this wonderful opportunity. But you keep praying for us, and we'll pray for you. And together, I believe God has wonderful things for us. 
Let's bow together in prayer. In just a moment of silent prayer, would you thank the Lord for what He's done in your life this year? And would you tell Him that you love Him? And would you tell Him how thankful you are for this school and for the privilege you've had to be here? And would you ask Him in the weeks and months ahead to make you more like Christ? This is my prayer and all of our prayer, Lord. It's a prayer of thanks and a petition for Christ-likeness. We bless your name with thanksgiving for all that you've done. And we long for that work to be made complete as we become more like the Savior we love. In his name we pray. Amen. Could we just sing together before a rest comes? Oh, how He loves you and me. Let's stand together. Oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life one. sit down, turn around, tell somebody two things you're most thankful for this year. Right now, do that, okay? And then you can sit down.